Back to another episode of the Housewives. Feminist Warren Housewives podcast. I'm your host Lindsay, and we are coming back for another year of polygamy episode. This particular episode deals with Miranda Nancy Johnson Hyde. This is going to be another controversial story because there are conflicting reports. And I would encourage every listener out there to go do their own independent study and read all the source material. Brian Hales on his website josephsmithpolygamy.com weighs and balances some of the sources of this information because one of the accusations is going to be that Joseph Smith started the relationship 10 years prior to marrying her and uh, was sleeping with her as well. So it's a very controversial story. So I would encourage everyone to go ahead and read that and do as much research as possible as always because context is so important in these stories, you're going to get a lot of salacious facts, but you also need to understand the uh, outgoing events, the hierarchy of the church. I'm currently in my research studying the Utah period, and I'm constantly amazed to find out that it's sort of this symbiotic chicken-and-the-egg relationship when it comes to polygamy. You can't just take polygamy on its own, and you can't just take church history on its own. The two are so entwined, and they inform each other so much that it's so important that you understand both of them, because you need to understand a lot of these polygamous marriages were informed by a lot of the politics happening in the church. So with that said, I would also encourage you to buy the book In Sacred Loneliness. You can buy Brian C. Hale's book, and I, and I will go ahead and link to those. But let's get into Miranda's Nancy Johnson story. She was born on June 28, 1815 in Pomfret, Windsor County, Vermont. And again, we're going to have readers do this because I think that brings their voices into light. So let's see what Miranda says about her early life. In February of 1818, my father, in company with several families from the same place, emigrated to Hiram, Portage County, Ohio. In the winter of 1831, Ezra Booth, a Methodist minister, procured a copy of the Book of Mormon and brought it to my father's house. They sat up all night reading it, and were very much exercised over it. As soon as they heard that Joseph Smith had arrived in Kirtland, Mr. Booth and wife, and my father and mother went immediately to see him. They were convinced and baptized before they returned. They invited the prophet and Elder Rigdon to accompany them home, which they did, and preached several times to crowded congregations, baptizing quite a number. I was baptized in April following. The next fall, Joseph came with his family to live at my father's house. He was at that time translating the Bible, and Elder Rigdon was acting as scribe. The following spring, a mob, disguising themselves as black men, gathered and burst into his sleeping apartment one night, and dragged him from the bed where he was nursing a sick child. They also went to the house of Elder Rigdon, and took him out with Joseph into an orchard, where, after choking and beating them, they tarred and feathered them, and left them nearly dead. My father, at the first onset, started to the rescue, but was knocked down and lay senseless for some time. Here I feel like bearing my testimony that during the whole year that Joseph was an inmate of my father's house, I never saw aught in his daily life or conversation to make me doubt his divine mission. 
Now, you'll notice that Miranda has a famous last name, Miranda Johnson Hyde. Those are all famous Mormon names, and she would be well-connected, as were most of Joseph's wives. If uh, they didn't live with him previously, they might have been connected to people that he was friends with. She had rather famous brothers, Lyman Johnson and Luke Johnson. Uh, They would be known for criticizing Joseph Smith publicly and charging Joseph Smith with slander and lying in 1837. Luke would later be re-baptized by Orson Hyde. Lyman was excommunicated with David Whitmer on April 13, 1838. And here's what Lyman had to say about it. He said, quote, If I could believe Mormonism as I did when I traveled with you and I preached, if I possessed the world, I would give it. I would give anything. I would suffer my right hand to be cut off if I could believe it again. Then I was full of joy and gladness. My dreams were pleasant. When I awoke in the morning, my spirit was cheerful. I was happy by day and by night, full of peace and joy and thanksgiving. But now it is darkness, pain, sorrow, misery in the extreme. I have never since seen a happy moment. End quote. It's also widely believed that he suffered a tragic death for his sins and he drowned in the Mississippi River in a boating accident in Prairie du Chien, uh, Wisconsin. According to Wilford Woodruff, he would later write, he did not go home and hang himself like Judas, but he did go and drown himself and the river went over his body while his spirit was cast in the pit where he ceased to have power to curse either God or his prophet in the time of eternity. I would just like to recommend that you guys research the life of Lyman and Luke. They both have fascinating stories to tell and there's some controversies surrounding the death after he was excommunicated. Um, This is totally me speculating and there's not hardly any evidence except for hearsay to back this up. There are stories to suggest later on in the Utah period that the Danites or the destroying angels were a group that existed in Nauvoo and their job was to protect the church at all costs. And um, of course we don't get the idea of blood atonement till later on in the Utah period. But um, in reading John D. Lee's history, he claims that Joseph Smith wanted anyone who disaffected from the church to be killed or to die and pay for their sins. Now we know that that just didn't happen. That was an order. There was a lot of people that disaffected. There was a lot of people excommunicated and weren't hurt. So that's the backdrop that happened in the late 1830s. Um, But let's back up into 1833. Miranda met and was courted by Orson Hyde and they would later marry. And if you go to the the text uh, link that I sent, I have pictures of the Johnson farm where Miranda spent most of her childhood. You can see some great pictures. She said of that, In 1833, we moved to Kirtland, and in 1834, I was married to Orson Hyde and became fully initiated into the cares and duties of a missionary's wife, my husband in common with most of the elders giving his time and energies to the work of the ministry. Within months of the marriage, Orson was called to be an apostle of the church a calling which meant he would spend two of the next three and a half years in the eastern states and England in missionary service. Back home, Miranda was raising two of their children, and by June of 1839, Miranda and Orson had relocated to Nauvoo, and a third child had soon arrived. On April 6, 1840, Orson Hyde wrote, quote, I was appointed in company with Elder John E. Page to go on a mission to Jerusalem. So Orson gets sent on a mission to Jerusalem. It would be a three-year mission. On October 24, 1841, Orson stood on the mountain 
on the Mount of Olives and consecrated Palestine for the gathering of Judah in the last days. And that's a fascinating story on its own. you got to look that up as well. When Orson left for England, Miranda was left with this new three-week-old baby. It was said of her that she experienced, quote, what so many Mormon women have since felt, the cares and anxiety of the wife and mother when the husband is on a mission in a foreign land and sustaining influence of the Holy Ghost that enabled her to bear cheerfully, even happily, the many scenes of hardship and persecution that all the old members of the church have endured, end quote. This would just be one of the many times Miranda was asked to wait for her husband as he traveled around the globe in church service. Many of these women, um, especially women in polygamous marriages, would spend the majority of their marriages alone, raising the children alone. It was very much being like a single parent. Miranda would write, quote, In the summer of 1837, leaving me with a three-week-old babe, he, in company with Heber C. Kimball and others, went on their first mission to England. Shortly after his return, in the summer of 1838, we, in company with several other families, went to Missouri, where we remained till the next spring. We then went to Nauvoo. In the spring of 1840, Mr. Hyde went on his mission to Palestine, going in the apostolic style, without purse or scrip, preaching his way, and when all other channels were closed, teaching the English language in Europe, till he gained sufficient money to take him to the Holy Land, where he offered up his prayer on the Mount of Olives, and dedicated Jerusalem to the gathering of the Jews in this dispensation. Having accomplished a three years' mission, he returned, and shortly after, in accordance with the revelation on celestial marriage, and with my full consent, married two more wives. At last we were forced to flee from Nauvoo, and in the spring of 1846 we made our way to Council Bluffs, where our husband left us to go again on mission to England. On his return, in the fall of 1847, he was appointed to take charge of the saints in the States, and to send off the emigration as fast as it arrived in a suitable condition on the frontiers, also to edit a paper in the church interest, the name of which was Frontier Guardian. Miranda was the only one of the Johnson family known to have moved to Nauvoo. There she experiences the joy of living the gospel and, the, and sorrow as she would bid farewell to her husband on his frequent missions to the church. So this mission to Palestine becomes one of the greatest trials and big controversies because he travels 2,000 miles away. In his dedicatory prayer on the Mount of Olives, he particularly remembered his family at home. He said, quote, Though thy servant is now far from his home, yet he remembers, O Lord, his family, whom for thy sake he has left, the hands that have fed, clothed, or shown favor unto the family of thy servant in his absence, or that shall hereafter do so, let them not lose their reward, but let a special blessing rest upon them. And in thy kingdom let them have an inheritance, when thou shalt come to be glorified in this society. When Orson, while Orson was gone, while Orson was gone, Miranda, quote, had to live in a little log house whose windows had no glass, but in place of which were pieces of greased paper. A little cornmeal and a few groceries were all the provisions remaining to sustain her and the little ones, end quote. Noting Miranda's living conditions, Joseph Smith received the following revelation dated December 2nd, 1841, quote, Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph, that inasmuch as you have called upon me to know my will concerning my handmaid, Nancy Miranda Hyde, behold, it is my will that she should have a better place prepared for her than that which she lives now. And let my handmaid Nancy Miranda Hyde hearken to the counsel of my servant in all things, whatever, whatsoever he shall teach unto her. 
end quote. Joseph was further directed to importune with the Ebenezer Robinson family to provide for her and her children until Orson returned from his mission. The Robinsons were promised that as they provided for Marinda, ungrudgingly, she was going to be a blessing to them. So soon, Marinda moves into a better home. Now again, Fawn Brody in her biography has this one source where she claims that in the late 1830s, Marinda is already having a relationship with Joseph. So a lot of this would be framed in a lot of um, early historians' minds that Marinda is getting these favors. She's being getting special treatment from Joseph because she is a favorite of his. Now Brian C. Hales would argue that there is that that Fawn Brody's research has a lot of problems with it and it's not consistent. But we do know that Fawn, that Miranda was given a better home and she was very close in close living quarters with Joseph Smith while her husband was gone in Palestine. Miranda, in the spring of 1842, we do know she's married to Joseph Smith. In, a, in Joseph's diary is a list of his marriages. It includes the entry, quote, April 42, Miranda Johnson to Joseph Smith, end quote. One of the most controversial statements about the relationship would be given by John Bowes, quoting William Arrowsmith. He said, quote, On the third month, 27th, 1849, William Arrowsmith of August Lee County, Iowa, about 60 miles from Nauvoo, he never was a Mormon, but he married the sister of Mormon apostle John Taylor. The Mormons persuaded his wife to leave him, and they rob- robbed him of $100 worth of property. He says that he, William Aerosmith, slept at his mother-in-law's, who, as a Mormon, when Joseph Smith slept with Orson Hyde's wife under the same roof, end quote. So they claim, apologists believe the wording is confusing, the statement, and believe that Aerosmith's mother was home at the time and wasn't disturbed by the arrangement. So this is one... The reason why this is important is there's all this controversy still by scholars whether Joseph had sexual relationships with his wives or not. Brian C. Hales argues that he doesn't. I think he the only sexual relationship he argues that is possible is with um, Patty Bartlett Sessions, which you can um, hear Alice Fisher-Roberts talk about in an earlier episode. But other people say this is evidence because there's all this hearsay saying Joseph would sleep with these wives, and this is one um, that Joseph slept with Orson Hyde's wife under the same roof. Now, some people that believe those those statements say, well, they were just sleeping. Uh, I believe Eliza R. Snow, and when, when we talk about it later on, will say, well, this famous quote of, really, you guys knew Joseph better than that. You knew that he was having sex with these women. She didn't say it like that, but that's my, my contemporary paraphrasing. So um, it's a big controversy. Where I stand personally is uh, polygamy was understood to as we know in DNC 132, to bring about um, progeny. And uh, as we can see with William Clayton, who had already gotten his wife pregnant, his plural wife pregnant, and as the other brethren would be fast to do soon following, they would, of course, have sexual relations. So I don't know why this wouldn't apply to Joseph. I don't know why he wouldn't be having sex with these women. It was just how the doctrine was interpreted and understood. Eight months later, in December, Orson would return home from his mission. So remember, while he's gone, Joseph marries his wife and may or may not have slept with her. It is not clear if Orson knew about his wife's marriage to Joseph. However, by March, Orson does learn about plural marriage himself, and he does marry two additional wives. After Joseph's death in 1844, Miranda and Orson continued to live in Nauvoo. In April of 1846, shortly before leaving Utah, Orson dedicated the Nauvoo Temple. 
Miranda experienced anguish of being driven from her home again as the saints left Nauvoo. Her sorrow was offset somewhat by the joy of um, being one of the first people to receive her endowments in Nauvoo Temple. Another cause for great rejoicing before leaving Nauvoo was the return of her prodigal brother, Luke, to the church, who Orson baptized. Orson and Miranda Hyde lived at Council Bluffs until 1852, and Orson was presiding the church there. During that time, Miranda received a letter from Sarah M. Kimball, a dear friend in Nauvoo, and it said, quote, Nothing affords me more pleasure than to be assured that I am not forgotten by whom I so dearly love as yourself. I was sorry to hear that your family had been sick, dear sister H. You must have had your heart and hands full, but you say you had strength given to your day. Inasmuch as you have not overcome, it is all right for your husband said that we must overcome all things in order to become pillars in the temple of God, end quote. Over the next 20 years, Miranda would bear seven more children, Orson would continue to serve missions, and marry seven additional wives. In 1870, Miranda and Orson divorced after 34 years of marriage. It's said that the divorce is probably because a couple had grown apart, because Orson took more wives and was frequently gone, setting up homes for these women. At 58, Orson continued to marry younger women, including Julia Reinhardt, who was 21, um, two years later, Elizabeth Josephine Gallier, who was 22, and Sophia Margaret Lyon, who was 18. Anna Eliza Webb, who wrote the famous uh, The 19th Wife, recalls, and remember, she her stories have some problems, quote, A few years since, at a large party at the social hall in Salt Lake City, Orson Hyde, one of the Twelve Apostles, met the wife of his youth, the mother of many of his children, He's talking, she's talking about Miranda. He had escorted some of his younger wives there, and she came with a friend. It chanced that they were seated near each other at the table, and they were compelled to speak. They shook hands, exchanged a very commonplace greeting, and that was all that passed between them. It very often occurs that an elderly lady attends a party with friends and meets her husband there with one or more younger wives, and sometimes both she and they have to watch their mutual husband while he plays the agreeable to some young girl. Sometimes these old and middle-aged ladies do not see their husbands once a year. And yet they have, they may not live half a mile apart, end quote. Like her brother Luke, Miranda Hyde made a lasting contribution to the establishment of Utah. After coming to Utah in 1852, she and her husband settled the 17th Ward. In 1868, she became the Ward's Relief Society president, serving in the, that position until her death, because at those times, a lot of those Relief Society presidents did serve it until their death. She was also a member of the board of directors at the Desert Hospital in Salt Lake. She sought the rights of Mormon women at the time when much of the nation was attempting to destroy the rights of all Latter-day Saints. And she was selected as a member of the committee which drafted a resolution against some of the um, anti-polygamy legislation being considered in Congress. And you can look that up in the Millennial Star. She... Also, it was 14 women who drafted a resolution thanking the acting governor of Utah, S.A. Mann, for signing the act that gave the women in, the, in Utah the right to vote, the second such act in the United States. And if you're interested in this, in this um, issue, and hopefully we can do a podcast on this sometime, polygamy contributes to women's suffrage. I mean, it's, they gave women the right to vote in Utah first. A lot of people don't know that because they were hoping that they would vote against polygamy, and they didn't. So um, they give the women the right to vote. They don't vote the way the government wants them to do. So the government revokes the vote and later reinstates it again. So Utah women, Mormon women, have a huge contribution to make as far as the suffrage movement goes. And Miranda was involved in that. And we will talk about that more when it comes up in the Utah period. A year before her death, Miranda was honored on her 70th birthday as being one of the oldest living members of the church, having been baptized in 1831. She died 
on March 23rd, 1886 in Salt Lake City, and her ex-husband, Orson, had died previously on November 28th, 1878. Miranda's grandchildren later wrote of her caring, thoughtful demeanor, quote, She was loving and sympathetic with all. She was a lovely creature, dignified, took an interest in life and people. And you can see her, um, I believe it's her little bio on the text picture. And I just want to give a shout out to the reader who read for Miranda today, Sarah Hansen. Um, so thank you, Sarah. That really contributes to this, and she did a great job. So if you want to see this project continued, consider leaving a donation at feministmorehousewivespodcast.org, and we have a whole year of exciting stories coming up. I would encourage you all to stay with us. It's going to be a great year, lots of good research coming up. I've talked to a lot of experts lined up. It's going to be a good year. I know it's hard information to take. And uh, there have been some questions from people about sources. If you're interested in any of the sources that I use, a lot of them are listed in the text that's linked on the podcast. And since a lot of it is hard and controversial information, I would encourage you all to go study out these sources. Because they are controversial, a lot of people might think that they are, quote, anti-Mormon sources. But I think you'll be surprised that a lot of these are from our own church historians, our own church, our own church's archives. You can you can see a lot of these at the history library downtown. You can talk to a lot of church historians who will back up this information. And a lot of this stuff is being printed in the Joseph Smith papers. If there's a question about sources or an antagonistic source that I use, I make sure that I always try to bring that up. And I always try to uh, tell you if I'm speaking from my own bias or my own speculation. So hopefully that helps clear it up. But again, I can't convince you of anything of the veracity of these claims, you're going to have to look it up yourself. And I would encourage everyone to do that. The more sunshine on this stuff, the better. Sunshine's the best disinfectant, they say. So go uh, go study this. Go read this. Go read uh, Todd Compton's and Sacred Loneliness. It's the best primer to understanding the wives of Joseph Smith. And I will point you to other great books as we continue down the path of polygamy and how it's affected our church. So thank you for listening to the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. And I encourage you to leave comments in the comment section at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. <laughs>